Well, I hope that for those who participated in the Fast for Change this week, that the experience you had was profound and challenging and inspiring and motivating in some ways. I'd be excited to hear the stories. I hope that um, there were dozens of stories shared across all three of our locations as we broke fast together as a community at breakfast uh, this morning. I trust that that was true. I've been encouraged by the stories um, that I've been hearing, that's for sure. My participation in the fast is a little different than it had been in the past. I, I tried to push myself further into experiencing the fast for change. So like previous years, uh, I reduced my intake to a single meal in a day and you know rice and beans at supper time. That was it for me, um, except for the one day uh, that I cheated and I just owned that in front of the whole community with no excuse. Um, but I was down to one meal a day, rice and beans. I, I This time though, added some other layers. This time I tried to reduce my personal water usage in the morning to um, the recommended, whatever was recommended, two minutes of, of cold water in the morning for the shower. And can I just say that if you're taking a cold shower, two minutes is plenty of time. That is more water than you will ever. I think I devised a routine that used about 15 seconds of water. I was not interested in staying in that stream of water. But that I, did, I added that to it as well. This year, I eliminated all of my personal internet use for the week and didn't watch a second of TV. That was sort of what I carved out. And let me tell you what my experience was this week. In a variety of ways, at a number of moments, all the way through the week, my consistent experience was recognizing just how little I was able to identify with the plight of the poorest of the world's poor. Just at every step, I realized the number of ways in which I continue to fall back into the lap of 21st century North American luxury. You know, I'd hear a story about somebody who's walking to work and I'd think, man, I still drive my car. You know, I hear uh, about a couple who's sleeping on the floor, who fasted from their bed, and I think, man, I, I didn't do that. Um, I unload the dishwasher and think, I should have washed those by hand. I go and do the kids' laundry, and I look at the machines and just think how blessed we are to, to have all of these conveniences. And by the end of the week, honestly, what I felt was that I had taken the tip of my big toe and put it in the shoe of the poorest people in the world to walk an inch in their shoes. And I spent a lot of the week trying to imagine what it would feel like, what the experience would be like to have all of what we have stripped away and to really experience solidarity with those who live on less than $2 a day. And the more I indulge my imagination, the more co the compassion welled up inside of me because that's really the point of what we did this week. It's about standing in solidarity with the poor in order to, to nurture sympathy, to, to um, arouse compassion in order to motivate us for justice. And yet sometimes I think it's kind of easy to experience compassion for the desperate poverty of you know two, half of the world or whatever it is. You know, the, it's easy to feel sympathy for the kid with the flies on her face. That's why they put that picture in the commercial, because they know it arouses compassion. What I sometimes feel 
is that it can be harder to feel compassion for other kinds of poverty. Poverty that we experience every day all around us. It's harder sometimes to feel compassion for a poverty that's being experienced because somebody is living out the consequences of the bad choices that they've made. It's harder sometimes to experience compassion when somebody is experiencing poverty and they don't appear to be motivated to address that, to change their circumstance. It's hard sometimes to know what to do with those kinds of... How do you engage lovingly in those kinds of circumstances? What do you do? And I think that question forms a part of the central tension of the story that Jesus told that we've been looking at all month called the story of the Good Samaritan. That's what's the kernel at the heart of this story. Let me read to you the beginning of it in Luke chapter 10, starting verse 30. It says, in reply to the question, you know, who's my neighbor that I am responsible to love? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, it's an interesting way that Jesus paints the beginning of the story. His description of the man is not accidental. In fact, it is in his description of this man that the entire tension in the story resides. You see, in the ancient world, there were two ways to identify a person, to to get a sense immediately and quickly of what kind of person they were. Two ways. The first way that you could identify somebody in terms of their background, the community they came from, was by their dress, by the robes they wore. I mean, in those days, every community, every village, every ethnic group, every religious group, and so on, every distinct people group had a distinct style of dress. Their costumes were unique. So somebody walking down the road towards you, a perfect stranger coming towards you, you can look at their clothes and know something about the kind of person they are because you can know what people group they belong to. Now when you meet that person, there's another way to uh, determine what kind of person, what group they're from. And the, the way is that you listen to the way they speak. There's an amazing number of dialects and languages that get used in in ancient Israel. There's like three different kinds of Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and Greek and Latin and Ashdodian and Samaritan and Phoenician. And there's just like, there's tons of different kinds of languages. And so you meet this person on the street and you ask them a couple questions and you listen for their accent and you listen to their dialect and you can, oh, I get it. You're from this village in that province. Like you can you can identify it down to the actual village by the way they speak. And the, way, the reason you're trying to determine by the way they dress and by the way they speak is you're trying to figure out, is this person my neighbor? Is, are they a part of us? Are they a part of my tribe or are they them? Is this somebody that I am responsible to love? Is this a person that deserves my care? That's the question. And Jesus in his story says, so a man goes along, gets attacked by robbers, and he's stripped naked, and he's beaten unconscious. He has no clothes, and he cannot speak. There is no way to identify whether or not this man is a neighbor. 
whether or not you ought to get involved and love him. But Jesus says uh, shortly thereafter, in verse 31, it says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So this priest comes along. All right, this priest has every resource that a person would need in order to help this guy in the ditch, this helpless man. Uh, the priest is a wealthy man. The, in those days, the, uh, the religious leaders, the, the priests, were a part of the uh, socioeconomic upper class of society. They weren't middle class even. They were, they were upper class. They were the wealthy elites of society, much the way it is today. Uh, <laughs> By the way, if anybody sees my driver, I heard the lights on our Bentley is on. If you could get somebody to resolve that, that'd be amazing. So they, they, this is a man who's got money. He can afford to help. It's a man, not only does he have money, he has a horse. He's riding from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the story doesn't say that, but that's evident to everybody in the ancient world. Wealthy people don't walk 17 miles through the desert. Poor people do that. Wealthy people ride. So here's a man with money and a horse. He's got everything he needs to provide some serious assistance to this helpless man in the ditch. And he's religiously motivated to do it. In the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbis wrote this. They said, how do we know that if a man sees his fellow drowning or mauled by beasts or, listen to it, attacked by robbers, he is bound to save him? From the verse... Thou shalt not stand by the blood of thy neighbor. The, the rabbi said, listen, if you see a fellow of yours being attacked by robbers, you're bound to save him. The Bible says it because you love your neighbor. So good news for this man in the ditch, right? He's helpless and unconscious, but here comes this priest, a man of money and means and, and who's got a horse. He can transport the guy. He's religiously motivated to help in exactly a situation like this. And yet, Jesus says, the priest does nothing. He chooses not to get involved. Why would he choose to, to not get involved? Well, the priest has a problem. His problem is that it's his responsibility to love the guy and to help him if he's a neighbor. If he's a fine, upstanding, devout, religious Jewish man. But he might not be. This guy might be a lowlife. He might be a scumbag. He might be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. This guy... He could be a sinner, somebody, you know, that's Jewish speak in that time for not living up to the Jewish law. He could, worse, he could be a Samaritan who was like a half-breed Jew. He could be a, a Gentile whom the Jews hated. And if he was someone like that, it's not that the law discouraged the priest from helping, the law forbade it. In the book of Sirach, this is what the writers write, it's a Jewish book from that era. It says, when you do a good deed... Make sure you know who's benefiting from it. Then what you do will not be wasted. Give to religious people, but don't help sinners. Do good to humble people, but don't give anything to those who aren't devout. Don't give them food 
or they'll use your kindness against you. And every good thing you do for people like that will bring you twice as much trouble in return. Look, the Lord Most High hates sinners and is, wants to punish them. So give the good people, but don't help sinners. That was the teaching of the day. That if you get involved in helping somebody who's not worthy of your help, somebody who's not religious, not devout, somebody who's not at their core a good person, then first of all, you're just wasting your resources. You're not going to create any positive benefit. They're just going to squander it. I mean, not only are you wasting your resources, if you nurture them back to health, if you give them food and make them strong, in their strength, they're just going to take advantage of you. In fact, they're going to inflict twice as much trouble on you as if you had just left them alone. Never mind all of that, God himself hates them and wants to punish them. And here you are interfering with God's punishment by making people comfortable, by reducing the impact of their circumstances. You're, you're actually working against God. And if this person gets healthy, they're just going to go on sinning. And then what? See, the priest comes across this guy and because he cannot determine whether or not this guy is worthy of his help, he decides the risk is too much and he just goes on his way. This part of the story is fascinating to me because, and I want to say this as gently as I can, I think, myself included, that many of us in the community are tempted to respond the same way when we come across people in need. Before we decide whether or not we're going to get involved and love and serve them, we first try to determine whether or not they deserve our love. And I, I, I want to say this as lovingly as I can, because I don't think most people want to be this way. But it's real and it happens in our community. That, for example, when people see shelter residents in the smoke hole or in the lounge in the middle of the day watching a TV that's nicer than the one that I have in my room, there are people, and I know it because I've heard it periodically, there are people who are tempted to say, what are these people, lazy? Why don't they just go get a job? Or to just brush the whole community aside and say, they're all just addicts who don't want to get better. They don't want recovery. I think at times, while we're trying to love and serve a community of single parents who are underemployed and under-resourced and whose kids are at risk in Welland, there can be a temptation in people's hearts. And I've heard people say these things, to say, well, just look at these families. You know, the parents get to sit on the porch and drink beer all day while I'm at work earning the money and paying the taxes that go to supply their benefits. How is that fair? I recently, somebody said this to me recently, I don't understand why we pay single mothers to have children. They know if they have another kid, they just get more money. We make judgment calls where we try to 
discern whether a person is deserving of our love and care. In, in the migrant community, you know, the migrant worker community in Vineland or Niagara in the Lake, I imagine how easy it is for all of the cultural assumptions about black men to kick in when you see a group of migrant workers walking down Victoria Avenue in the evening. These guys are dangerous. Well, they're Jamaican. What, are they part of a gang? Are they high on weed? How many illegitimate children are we supporting back home? Maybe the thoughts that you have aren't those ones. But if you're anything like me, you have not been above the temptation to make judgments about people based on their situation. And actually, frankly, based on their situation without any real information whatsoever, in the complete absence of information, of relationship. I mean, think about the priest. The priest's problem was he didn't know this guy. The book of Sirach says, don't give any help to anybody you don't know because you don't know what kind of people they are. If the priest had known this guy, then he would have had some information to work with. But in the absence of knowledge, he made assumptions. He generalized the way we do. We talk about what those people are like. And we assume that we understand what's behind them just because we've heard what other people say or we've seen something when we're walking by or because of something we experienced in our two hours of volunteering a week. Which, if you volunteer in any of our anchor causes, thank you so much and it's awesome and you make such a difference. But but I think sometimes we confuse serving lunch to people with really knowing them. And that's not relationship. That we make assumptions without knowing a person's heart, without hearing their story, without understanding what's going on, without walking a mile in their shoes. And then based on the assumptions, we tend to decide for ourselves whether or not these people are worthy of our love. I mean, the priest decided that if he helped this guy, he might just use that help to turn around and make bad decisions all over again. And I've heard people in our community and outside of it ask similar kinds of questions. Well, if I give that person money, aren't they just going to go use it to buy booze? You know, if we make the shelter too comfortable, aren't we going to demotivate people from trying to go and get a job and get help? Which I I find interesting because we don't ask those questions about our kids. Just other people's kids. Um, You know, if we supply support programs for people, aren't they just going to keep being irresponsible? The question that underlines all of those attitudes at the end of the day is this. Are these people really worthy of the love that we have the resources to provide? And I'm going to tell you, friends, it's the wrong question. Yes, it's important to ask questions. There are people who will take advantage of you. There are people who are gaming the system. There are people who are too lazy to work. There are people who don't want recovery. There are people with ill intentions. Yes, all of that is true. What is not true is that just because somebody is like that, that they are undeserving of our love. It just means we have to be smarter about how we love people. 
which sometimes means saying no, which sometimes means letting people hit rock bottom, which sometimes means allowing people to experience the consequences of their choices, which sometimes means giving people a hard push to make a positive choice in their life. All of that's true. But the Samaritan, who is the hero in this story and the person Jesus says we ought to be like, never once asked those questions. Never once tried to figure out whether this person deserved his loving support. He just loved him. And the whole point of Jesus' story is that if you want to experience eternal life, if you want to experience the abundance and fullness of life, the way it's meant to be lived in the kingdom of God, more and better life than you could have ever imagined, one translation says, then you've got to choose to be the Samaritan, not the priest. So how do we do that? How do we turn that corner in our head and fight against the natural inclination that we all have both those serving folks in our anchor causes and I think folks in our anchor causes back towards the rest of the community. How do we fight against the inclination to make assumptions and judgments against each other? In my opinion, the starting place is to get crystal clear on what it is that Jesus has done for me. When you get clear on what it is that Jesus has done for you, it eliminates every opportunity for arrogant self-righteousness to take a hold in your life. Because that's really what it is. When you ask the question of whether somebody else is worthy or deserving of your loving involvement, that is arrogant self-righteousness coming out. Nothing else. That is simply um, you saying... I understand what it means to be a good person and I am in a position to judge whether or not this other person is one. And that's just condescending judgmentalism. And the way to scrub that out is to deal with the truth about Jesus Christ. And the truth about Jesus Christ is this. That he died for all of us exactly the same. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. He says, for Christ's love compels us. The love that Jesus has shown for me, he says, is what drives me forward in a life of serving other people. He says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and were raised again. Paul says, listen, I'm convinced of one thing, that Jesus died for everybody. And if Jesus died for everybody, guess what that means? Everybody is equally lost without him. Everybody is equally screwed up without Christ. And by the way, he didn't die for us because we deserved it. And he didn't die for us because we earned it. And he didn't die for us because he thought we were worth it. Well, he thought we were worth it, but not because of anything we had done. He died in spite of the fact that we wanted nothing to do with him. In spite of the fact that we were taking advantage of his goodness. In spite of the fact that we were living as his enemies. In spite of the fact that none of us was trying to do better or be better or make something positive or productive of ourselves. He died in spite of our unworthiness. 
And he died for all of us just the same. The truth in the inherent at the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth about me and the truth about you, is that we are all the same. Tim Huff is a guy who works with street people in Toronto. He wrote a book called Bent Hope. And this is how Tim summarized it, and this just captured me. Tim says this. The awkward truth can be packed into a single crass statement. This is him, not me. Either we are all beggars, hookers, and junkies, or none of us are. There is no in-between. And then he goes into confession. He says, every day I play the role of a beggar. I look to the charity of other people, seemingly wanting something for nothing to feed my ego and the overwhelming need to belong. Every day I play the role of a hooker. I try to sell words, ideas, and actions that might make me desirable to others, often against my own better judgment, in order to get the emotional validation I need to survive. And every day, he says, I play the role of a junkie. I feed my addictions, supplying relentless cravings with products, entertainment, daydreams, and relationships that are bad for me. Thus, when rendered solely in vulgar human slang, I believe that we are all beggars, hookers, and junkies. And if raw humanity existed as the only gauge, I would know for certain that I am all of these. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are all the same, that no one is better than anyone. We have the same struggles, the same battles, the same failures, even if they look radically different. The gospel makes you rethink what you think about yourself. It makes you rethink what you think about what you have. And what you've accomplished with your life. I remember a while ago I was in a con- um, overhearing a conversation between two businessmen. Who have good hearts and they genuinely want to understand and they want to love people. But they were struggling with some of the forms of poverty that they'd been exposed to. And one of them summing up the conversation said, you know, all things being equal. I just don't understand why they can't get up and take advantage of the many opportunities our country provides. And get a job and make something of themselves. I can't understand why they can't be more like me. We hear that when we hear people say stuff like, well, I got sober. What's the matter with you? How come you can't be more like me? We hear people say stuff like, well, I raised three kids with two jobs and no help. What's the matter with those people? Why can't they be more like me? And yet when you get clear on what it is that Christ has done for you, it totally reframes how you think about what you have and what you've become. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4 7, it says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Paul says, look, let's be honest. There's nothing you have that you didn't get as a gift from God. You have everything. Everything you have is a gift from God. So if everything you have is a gift from God, why do you brag and boast and puff yourself up and believe that you did it yourself? You know how I answered those two businessmen? I kind of inserted myself in the conversation. I said, guys, can I tell you something? I said, at the end of the day, 
all things aren't equal. That's the problem. I said, both of you came from loving, supportive homes. If you grew up in a home where your mom didn't lock you in an attic every single day, if you grew up in a home where your mom did not teach you to snort cocaine at the age of nine, guess what? You were given a gift by God that other people weren't given for reasons I can't explain, but you were given a gift that gave you an advantage and a head start at life. If you're down and out, your worst times weren't so far down and so way out that you were actually able to recover. If the deepest hurt you've ever experienced wasn't so deep that you were tempted to make a stupid decision to try and figure out how to cope with the pain, then you were given a gift. If you have never been in an industrial accident where a brain injury has literally taken everything away from you, then you have been given a gift. If you have access to health care and access to opportunity and access to education and access to a job, you have been given a gift that not everybody has. And it has put you at an advantage and given you a head start at life. And since that's true, that God has given us everything we have, then maybe it's time we stop being so proud of what we've been able to make of ourselves and instead take the advantages we've been given and try and figure out how to use them to serve the disadvantaged, those who weren't given the same gifts we were. Honestly, friends, when you get clear about what it is that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, it changes how you think about yourself. It changes how you think about what you have and what you've accomplished. And once you've begun to change how you think about yourself, it changes how you think about everybody else. It really does. The very next verse in 2 Corinthians, Paul just said, look, we believe that Jesus died for everybody and everybody's just the same. In the very next verse, he says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul says, because that's true, Jesus died for everybody. He says, from now on, hmm, we do not judge anybody based on the same external standards and criteria that the whole rest of the world uses. It's all illegitimate. We don't judge people based on their ethnicity or race or skin color. We don't judge people based on whether or not they have money or whether or not they have a job. We don't judge people based on their job title or their level of education. We don't judge people based on their shape or their size or any other external criteria that the world uses to figure out who has value and who doesn't. All of that, Paul says, is fundamentally irrelevant how a person dresses and how their hair is and all of that is irrelevant, Paul says. In the very next verse, in fact, he says, in the kingdom of God, if anyone's in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. All of that stuff is gone and what is replaced is a kingdom of God filter that we put over our eyes. And the only way that we regard people from now on is we guard them through the lens of Christ, where everybody is created in the image of God. 
Yes, distorted. Yes, broken and fractured. Yes, in varying states of disrepair and and restoration. But everybody is created in the image of God and reflects his beauty into the world. Where every single human being has been given gifts by God, things to contribute to the entire community such that if we were only just to give them a voice and a platform, they would guide us all into a deeper love for Christ and a deeper love for each other everybody is created in the image of God with the full potential to become everything that God has created them to be even if it takes decades and hundreds of mistakes like it has so far with me everybody is God's beautiful creation intended to reflect his beauty into the world intended in their own way to find healing and become whole to bring hope and joy onto our planet as they radiate the love of Christ towards others and when you begin to see people that way Through that lens, you begin to treat people differently. This is where Paul concludes that passage. He says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says, here's here's what God does. God's whole modus operandi with humanity, every last single one of them, is to reconcile people to himself through Jesus Christ. To intentionally not count somebody's misdeeds and mistakes and bad choices against them, but to invite them in to a restored, renewed humanity in relationship with him. And then Paul says, when he got that rolling through Jesus, he handed the whole thing over to us and said, now it's your turn. To stop counting people's mistakes and bad choices against them. And to start reconciling people to me. Reconciling people to my vision for their humanity lived out in a deep friendship with Jesus Christ. Reconciling them to themselves emotionally, mentally, physically. Reconciling them to the people around them, their family and their friends and a community of faith. Reconciling them to a world as a citizen and a participant and an advocate for love and an employer, a worker. To be a contributor to the love of Christ flooding the planet in all of its various ways. When you get clear on who you are before Christ. It is a way of making clear who everybody else is before Christ. And once we get clear on everybody who everybody else is, created in the image of God, a creation of beauty, reflecting God's goodness into the world, well, then we start treating each other differently. We start being advocates in each other's world to reconcile each other to the life that God always had for us. And friends, that's what the Samaritan came to do. The priest and the Samaritan saw two different things. The priest saw somebody who could potentially be a scoundrel and who would waste any help or love the priest would pour into his life and in fact maybe even use it against him. The Samaritan came along and he saw a human being in need. A person created in the image of God who 
through whom God wanted to reflect his beauty into the world. A person who did not deserve to be stuck in the circumstances that they found themselves in, even if it was partially due to their dumb decision to walk from Jerusalem to Jericho down a dangerous road all by themselves. That didn't matter. This is a person created in the image of God to reflect God's beauty into the world who does not deserve the situation he finds himself in. And the the Samaritan, it says, looked and saw and had compassion on him and he moved in and met all of the man's needs just like I would hope someone would meet mine in a similar situation. And that's what Jesus says. That if you want to experience eternal life, the abundant, full, overflowing, better than you could have ever imagined life, of life following Jesus in the kingdom of God, go and do that. No judgments, no condescension, no assumptions, just wholehearted love for those in horrible, desperate need. Let's pray together. God, you know better than anybody what goes on in my heart. The kind of junk that I think about and the kind of assumptions I make in my worst moments, the judgments I make based on external stuff that should be irrelevant. God, I'm sure I'm not alone. Change us, God, from the heart, from the inside out. Make us poor in spirit enough, humble enough to know how desperately we need you. And invite us into your endeavor of pouring love on everybody just because they're in your image and deserve to be loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.